Welcome everybody to Mike Mason Foundation uh, podcast series, Sharing the Hope. We are joined today by Dr. Katie Bates. She's a pediatric cardiologist at the University of Michigan and a member of NPCQIC's executive leadership team. Welcome, Katie. Do you want to tell us about yourself? Yes, I'm a pediatric cardiologist at University of Michigan. I did my fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, which is important because that's where my history with NPCQIC began. And then I also have a role in leading quality and safety initiatives at the University of Michigan, which gives you a little bit of a clue as to where my interests lie in addition to pediatric cardiology. Okay. So our first question, how did you become interested in the HLHS or hypoplastic left heart syndrome problem? Well, you know, I think anybody who goes into pediatric cardiology is interested in the question of single ventricle physiology, of which HLHS is one of the most common ones and probably in many ways, one of the more challenging forms of it. And so from an intellectual perspective, I think that's, I probably became interested in that pretty early on in my medical training. And then I think I really would identify though that I became most interested in HLS as a place to kind of focus my career because of MPCQIC and getting involved with them through our local chapter at CHOP or the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Back when I was a fellow, I think my Probably my third year of fellowship was when I really started working with the interstage monitoring team there and started seeing MPCQIC at the national level and and seeing what was happening there uh, was when I really started to get interested in this particular disease because of MPC really in large part. Okay. So that dovetails very nicely into the next question, which is what is National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative or NPCQIC? It is an acronym that is very difficult to say. So I I will say that other cardiology collaboratives since then have learned from us and have chosen easier to say acronyms. So a lot of times I will just say MPC or sometimes I'll even call it the collaborative just because it's easier to get it out of my mouth than the full mouthful. But the National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative is a group of pediatric heart centers that work together to improve outcomes for children who are born with single ventricle disease. It first started back in 2006, and we began enrolling patients in 2008. And it was born out of a recognition that outcomes for babies born with HLHS hadn't really improved for a while. I will say this is holding us to a pretty high standard because the Norwood procedure kind of came into being around early 80s is when people got good at it. So people saying, well, the outcomes really haven't improved for a while. They're saying this 25 years later. You can see that they're holding us to a pretty high standard, but it was true. Things hadn't gotten better for a long time for these babies. Many of the clinicians who formed the group, I was not one of them because I wasn't a cardiologist at that time, you know, were frustrated and, and devastated by the high mortality rates in this population. Of course, that's nothing compared to the families who experience that, but it's hard for us too. And they decided that it would make sense to work together to figure out how to improve outcomes for babies with HLHS. It's hard for any one center to do that because it's a pretty rare disease. And so in a given year, even our largest surgical sites will only do a relative handful of procedures. And so there's a limit to how quickly you can learn when you have only a small number of patients. And so patients were enrolled starting in 2008. And the first Eight years were really focused on reducing mortality during the interstage, which was wildly successful. And then we learned a whole bunch of different things along the way in terms of how much there was to gain from working across different centers, having lots of different people who were involved in caring for these babies in the room, from pediatric cardiologists to surgeons to 
nurses to dietitians to speech pathologists and perhaps most importantly how important it was to do all of that with families at the at our side co-designing with us largely through our partnership with sisters by heart that was a little bit all over the map <laughs> <laughs> that's okay so that's where mpc started we're now up to i think we have 69 centers that are currently enrolled and hundreds of people who work together to try to figure out how to improve multiple different aspects of everything from quality of life for these babies and their families to it's still improving survival. I would say we are really a force to be reckoned with in many ways. That's good. That's good. You said you got involved with NPCQIC with CHOP's local chapter. What about it got you interested? What Was there a project you worked on? Was there something in particular, a presentation you saw? What pulled you in and what kept you in? So I would say I got pulled in maybe at the beginning by my head. And what's kept me there is really my heart. When I was a fellow, I was interested in issues around quality and safety of health care and how it was delivered. And I wanted to understand how people were working together and what's called quality improvement. And I was trying to figure out how to kind of get there and what that might look like. And at the time at CHOP, there weren't a lot of really good examples of what I was seeing when I was looking at other kind of national resources through the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and other quality organizations. And then when I started getting involved with MPCQIC, I had this moment where I was like, oh, this is what I've been trying to see and understand. And this is, people are using these methods, which I think the simplest way to describe quality improvement is it's just a way of harnessing the power of individual problem solvers into one team to solve problems more effectively and more efficiently. And so I was very interested in that method. And MPCQAC was the first place that I really saw people teaching and using that method, which again, was just very interesting to me intellectually. And it ultimately all comes back to your heart. That was really what I wanted to be doing. And I wanted to understand that. And then I think the first time I went to an MPCQIC learning session and actually saw people and how they were interacting and how we were talking about facing these problems and using these techniques, I really just fell in love with both the quality improvement methodology that I've been interested in and just the concept of MPCQIC and, and this totally new approach at the time of having pediatric cardiac centers work together in a totally different way than they ever had before. What kept you around? So it really is, I still love the community that we've built. Uh, I have a lot of friends. We have our first in-person learning session coming up in November. I unfortunately am not going to be able to go due to family, my family needing me to be here. But my favorite thing about the in-person learning sessions are the hugs. If you walk in and look around, you will see hundreds of hugs happening as old friends see each other. And so that kind of a supportive community that's really bound together by love and caring for these patients and families is what keeps me involved in MPCQIC. Can you talk about your role currently in the organization? Yep. So I'm a part of our executive leadership team. There are four of us on that group. David Brown from Boston Children's and I are the two pediatric cardiologists. And then Carol Lannon is the, I would say, learning network guru who actually was in the room when MPCQIC came together and became a learning network way back in the day. And then Stacy Lynn, who's the president of Sisters by Heart, rounds us out by being our family representative. Force of nature in chief, I guess is how I would describe Stacy. So <laughs> that's the, definitely the impression I've got since I joined yeah. the HLHS world with my son six years ago. <laughs> yep, she is everywhere. <laughs> Stacy is everywhere and she's fantastic. So the four of us oversee the entire kind of NPC portfolio everything from finances to what are we talking about in our, our next learning session and really support the leaders who are also a part of our leadership group, which is pretty big at this point. But the four of us are, are the executive leadership group that meets every week and talks about how to keep us moving forward. Okay. 
what's on the agenda, what is NPC QIC looking to accomplish in the short term and uh, in the long term? Right now, we've put a lot of work in 2022, maybe in late 2021, into building a series of what we are calling toolkits that individual centers can take home and read and think about what tools in that kit they might want to use and apply to their local problems. So we've been, I would say, kind of tinkering or experimenting in a variety of different domains. Gross motor development, tube weaning was the first toolkit we did. Okay, I can't tell you how much I love the tube weaning. Yep. We all love that tube weeding project, but tell me about your son. Micah was born with HLHS. When we came out of the hospital, he had a G-button, still tube fed. And Mm -hmm. I basically had to change jobs because I couldn't support the needs of my family and my son with the tube beating schedule that he had. And so I used to work, I work in the power industry and I used to work ship work. So days, nights, weekends, you know, rotating. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't provide the kind of support you know, my wife and the kids needed and do that job. And so I I had to take another job. But even after that, once we got him weaned, the difference was like night and day. The reality was that our center, it's a charity center. So they don't have a lot of staff. They didn't have a program. They didn't have anything. And so it kind of just fell on us to sort of meander through it and do it ourselves and see what other people had done and come up with our own. And, you know, we're not, not intelligent people. I've got a degree in nuclear engineering and my wife's a veterinary doctor. So I <laughs> think we did an okay job. Yeah. Own, right. And it's a yeah. terrifying kind of scary thing when you're doing that. Yeah. And so seeing all the, when we went to our first in-person learning session and we went to the two weaning meeting, I think it was back in like 2017 or 18, that was a thing. And we we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so very thankful <laughs> because I know so many families are affected by that. Yeah, I think that's one of the cooler projects that has come out of MPCQIC. And honestly, I think 10 years ago, I don't think it mattered where you were getting your care. I don't think there was a team that was really focused on weaning off feeding tubes at that time. To be honest, part of that might be before MPCQIC started, I think we accepted a pretty high rate of growth failure between the first and the second stage. People just said, well, babies with HLHS just don't grow very well. It's just, it's just how it is period. And so really needing tubes is probably a downstream consequence of one of the very positive things that MPCQIC achieved early on, which was showing that actually HLHS babies can grow. They just need more calories than everybody else does. And for many of them, they do need to have a feeding tube placed in order to get those calories. I think we've gotten a little bit better. And another toolkit that I forgot to mention that we're working on or will be sharing soon is a bunch of ideas focused on helping more babies have the experience of feeding by mouth before they go to the operating room for their first procedure. Because there's a thought that our data hasn't shown this, but I think everybody kind of feels like maybe if you get exposed to the opportunity to eat before you go to the operating room, you'll do better after the operating room at getting back on that oral feeding. And really, I think most importantly, especially as somebody who's had two babies in the last three years, we know that being able to hold your baby and give your baby a little bit of food is such an important experience for every family. And we think that our HLHS families deserve that. As long as it's medically safe, there's some babies where it's not going to be okay to do that before the OR, but yeah. we do want to give people tools to be able to do that whereas they can. And then, yeah, tube weaning is one of those ideas where once somebody pipes up and says, well, here's what we've been working on. We have this idea. Everybody was blown away and super excited and wanted to know more. And so that community is really taken off and putting together lots of great resources and sharing them. And we are really hopeful that your story about having to quit your job and become an expert in tube weeding 
self-taught <laughs> will not be what people are saying even you know five years from now that that, that won't be an exception not the rule good very good so what about long-term goal strategy a couple years from now five years from now ten years from now what do you see in mpcqic doing that's a great question. You know, one of the things about being an improvement person is that we are never satisfied. And in large part at MPCQIC, that's because Sisters by Heart and Stacy won't let us be satisfied with what we've achieved. So we will forever be thinking about how can we continue to improve things. I think that, again, one of the things that we've learned as we've kind of gone through this path and working so closely with families, right, is that as our families evolve, they have been thinking a lot more about what happens after the Fontaine the interstage period is always going to be important. But I think all of us are ultimately interested in not just do these kids survive to the second procedure, the Glen, or do they survive to be one year old? We want to know what they look like when they're starting fifth grade and when they graduate from high school and when they decide that they want to have families of their own and so on. And so I think MPCQIC will probably in the next few years be looking even farther down the line. We started talking about this many years ago and calling it phase three, but then the Fontaine Outcomes Network has developed in that time. And so I think for us, kind of thinking about how we can partner together with the Fontaine Outcomes Network to really look at these issues that we think are important across the entire lifespan of people born with single ventricle disease is where MPCQIC will be headed in the next few years. It was interesting to me because when we went to the learning session we did, the in-person one, phase three was like a new concept idea that they were talking about. And we were super excited because that's where we were with our son. And then of course COVID happened and everything sort of ground to a halt. And then the Fontan Outcomes Network sort of bloomed. And from our perspective, I figured, oh, this is phase three. Like this is an internal, like this is NPC QIC kind of building another organization. And then I started talking with the Fontan Outcomes Network folks and I realized, oh no, this is a wholly different organization but not wholly different because Carol's in everything. So, <laughs> and she as is Stacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're and they're wonderful. And so there is sort of this merge effort going on currently, which I think is good because I think from the parents' perspective, like there's no difference, right? Like I I get through one stage and I'm on yeah. to the next, but it's all just my kid. Like, what is the path right. from start to hopefully after I'm gone? Right. That's my goal as a parent. Yeah, we are talking about what it might look like to partner together more closely. I do want to say, though, I think this is important, and I think there is the potential for some people who are in MPCQIC to be anxious about what that might mean, because we have a long tradition, and as clunky as our acronym is, it's ours, and we do love it. But I think their role, however we decide to come together with FON, there's always going to be a group of people who are very focused on the babies with HLHS and how we're caring for them before they their first intervention and how we care for them at the highest risk period. And I think until and unless we come up with a totally different way to treat this disease where we don't do the three surgical approaches that we do, we're going to need to have a community of people that can come together and share ideas because it's it's going to be a rare disease. It just always is, which is a good thing. <laughs> and so we we are taking that as kind of our one of our very top priorities as we talk with Fawn is how do we make sure that we continue to have a space where these passionate clinicians can come together and talk about how to continue to improve the care of infants with HLHS. Very good. Very good. What do you hope to accomplish in this space, like you personally, Katie? Well, so for me, I'm the type of leader who focuses both on outcomes. I like actually seeing us improve outcomes and sometimes even trickier than getting the improvement is sustaining the improvement. 
That's something NPCQIC has done very well. We've reduced that interstage mortality and we have held the line on that for a long time, which is really an extraordinary achievement that everybody who's been involved should be very proud of. So I would like to keep leading this community and making sure that we sustain those gains that we achieved. And then I think it is my job as a leader to help us think about how to come together with fun and how to take that broader view of the entire lifespan of babies because nobody goes into pediatrics just because they want to have somebody make it to one year of life, right? We're all here for the long haul, families more than anybody. And so I think discussions and the process that we're going through to think about how to come together with Fontana Outcomes Network is really important. And I think it's the next stage in our, well, it's the next developmental milestone, as it were, again, as a pediatrician. And that's, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's, that's how we're evolving over time. And I think that's the right thing to do. And so I think part of my job is to help kind of shepherd those two groups together and think about What's the next really breakthrough achievement we can achieve together in outcomes? So I'm very focused on outcomes, but I'm also very focused on people. So I think making sure as we do that, that everybody who's been a part of NPCQIC sees where they belong and in our partnership with Fawn and, and is able to still connect with the people that they want to connect with around the issues that they care about most. And that we continue to develop leaders from all different walks, parent leaders, cardiologists, nurses who can help continue to have this community grow and continue to do all the wonderful work that we've been able to do. Are there any projects you're particularly excited about at any level, like just new stuff to stuff that's blossoming right now? One of the things that we have been very excited about for a long time and that has taken a very long time to get off the ground for a variety of reasons, many of them are logistical and then COVID made everything more complicated, is our surgical coaching program. And this comes from a very humble and vulnerable recognition on the part of our surgeons that when they finish their training and go off into the operating room, most of them don't have somebody kind of looking over their shoulder to see how they're doing. And so it is possible that somebody, you know, in another part of the country has come up with a better way to do a Norwood. And you may not know that. I think probably ultimately Atul Gawande was one of the surgeons who wrote about needing a coach and how important that was. And so the idea of the surgical coaching program is that we have asked centers who are interested to sign up so that we can arrange for observations so that a surgeon from center A might travel to center B and watch a Norwood actually being performed and, and see how that surgeon and that team provides care to that infant. We have had other examples of where these types of visits have happened. I don't think in the OR and pediatric cardiology, but in like ICU or something. And people always learn a ton by being in a different place, seeing how people address the same problems just with a different set of tools and resources. So we have very high hopes that there will be a lot of learning for surgeons as they do this. It's just, as you can imagine, has been a lot to coordinate the travel and get all that stuff set up. I think we've had our first visit completed. I haven't yet heard how it went, but this is something that's exciting, not just for the Norwood, but you could see how a similar approach might help surgeons as they perform each of the surgeries in the Fontan. So this is a great example of a project that's going to start in MPCQIC, but you can very easily see how that would roll right into the Fontan Outcomes Network and how they might be having surgeons observing Fontans in the future. And that's really exciting because that's where I think you could think about disseminating ideas in the OR space in a very different way than we've done in the past, which would be really cool to see. Yeah, it would be. I remember when we were in the hospital, that was a question I had because the, at the center we were at, there was one, one surgeon who could do the Norwood, who could do the Fontan. And I was like, what if he gets in a car wreck? Like, what, what if something bad happened? Like, <laughs> like yeah. the robustness of the, and I understand like it's surgery is like a lot of things. There's a lot of art in the science. There's, some people can do it. Some people can't do it. I get that. Um, but yeah, 
more robust surgical stuff, especially with something so rare. That's good to see. That's really, that's good. That's <laughs> exciting. Yeah. yeah, it's a rare procedure. And there's no hospital that has 10 surgeons. Nobody has that many, right? We're all working with a handful and all of our surgeons need to go on vacation and spend time with their families and travel to conferences where they can learn from one another. So that's a, just a reality of the field. But I will say, I do think heart centers work together pretty well. And so I think if you get a phone call from somebody that their surgeon who does Norwoods is out of town and can we send this patient to you, I think any heart center would be working pretty hard to figure out how they could help a family out. I'm on a lot of the parent groups, Facebook and, and whatnot. Invariably, you get two kinds of posts that are often heart-wrenching. And the first one is the, the parent who just got the diagnosis in utero or, or whatever, and is just terrified of what's going to happen. And then occasionally, you get the, the one who came on who's a cardiologist who reviewed the stuff, counseled them to not go forward. And they always talk about, it seems like stuff that doesn't it isn't true anymore, like the survival rates being, you know, in the 70% range or, or stuff like that. So my question to you is if you could talk to a parent who was just diagnosed or who had gotten that kind of feedback, what would you say? The first thing I would say is that this is a completely devastating disease. It's just very hard. That is a devastating diagnosis. It's hard, I think, to think clearly in that state and it's understandable. I think it always makes sense to ask for another opinion from a different surgical center. Even before you do that, I think the most important thing is really to ask why. And you may have to ask, go back and ask why a second time, because it may be that the cardiologist explained that in the moment, but you're just, you know, all you can hear is we don't recommend blank. And so circling back and saying, can you explain to me why that is? Because there are some nuances. Some children will have um, say genetic syndrome or some particular piece of the anatomy that actually makes them very high risk or perhaps even too high of a risk. So I think understanding what it is that is bringing that team to that recommendation is really important. And then I think it's worth, like I said, asking for a second opinion. Each pediatric heart center has to make decisions about whether they will offer a service to a child. And it really kind of depends on what they know about their team, their resources, experiences they've had in the past. And so there usually aren't hard and fast rules about whether or not they do that. And I would say in order to think about specific places where you might want to reach out and get a second opinion, I would recommend going to Sisters by Heart and asking people like Stacy or her other peers how they went about that and which centers they would be contacting for that second opinion. So you're at shop. So that means you were in Philadelphia, right? Mm -hmm. For my fellowship, yes. Okay. So best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. I was a, a transplant, but I really enjoyed my time in Philadelphia. It is a great town and there's a lot of good food and the cheesesteaks are really the least of it in a lot of ways. Okay. I thought that Pat's was the better cheesesteak when I was there. I will say though, cheesesteaks tend to be better late at night than they are by the light of day. and. If you've had an alcoholic beverage, they do tend to taste even better. That sounds pretty unprofessional, but that is the That's truth. okay. That's okay. I agree. <laughs> you know what? Doctors are people too. I'll That's just right. leave it at that. That's right. <laughs> Which I think, again, like just to bring it back to MPCQAC, I think that is one of the really powerful things that I would hope that families have learned from working with us in MPCQAC. And I know that physicians and clinicians have learned from working with families. It's just a real recognition in a different way than we get at the bedside of 
the humanity on the other side. And I think doctors can seem very intimidating when you're in the hospital and we're walking around with our white coats and using giant words and using words that nobody's ever heard of and talking very quickly. And yes, that's true. But at the end of the day, we are all actually people. So there you go. So where you're at now, University of Michigan? Michigan? Where is that? Because I don't quite remember. The University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So we're about an hour outside of the city of Detroit, Southeast Michigan. So if if I found myself in Ann Arbor, where, where would you recommend I go eat? All right. Well, I like this line of questioning, Patrick. I like it a lot. I take food very seriously. So the place, if you tell people that you have been to Ann Arbor and anybody who knows Ann Arbor, the next question that's going to come out of their mouth is, did you go to Zingerman's? Zingerman's? Zingerman's. Zingerman's is a deli in Ann Arbor that is, I think it's been here for 40 years. So very long tradition. It's just a wonderful place and they treat their employees really well. They make simple food, but they make it very well and they use very good ingredients. It is not cheap, but if you think about it as a dinner rather than just a quick lunch on the go, it's worth it. And so it's really a food mecca. You'll hear it talked about on Food Network and it'll get mentioned kind of casually in the New York Times as as someplace you should know. And then what's cool about Zermas is they're very tied into the community of Ann Arbor. They, rather than have a bunch of franchises, they decided to really stay here in Ann Arbor. And what they've done instead is they have started a variety of different businesses. So they have a model where anybody who works for them who has a great idea for a business can pitch it and then kind of become one of the partners. And so they have their own bakery, they have their own creamery where they make cheeses, they have a candy store, they have a Korean restaurant, they have a roadhouse that's really focused more on Southern cooking. And so you really can't go wrong if you see that name Zingerman's, but if you're only going to have one meal in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you should go to the deli. I think anybody from Oprah to President Obama would tell you to get the Reuben while you're there. They have a variety of different Reubens, but you can't really go wrong depending on which one you pick. <laughs> well, good. Very good. Next time I'm up there. It's been, it's been a long time since I've been to Detroit. And Detroit is also a great place. I haven't been for a couple of years with COVID, but it has really changed a lot in the last 10 to 15 years. So worth a visit if you're in the Midwest. All right. Very good. I'll open it to you. Is there anything NPCQ, IC-wise that you want to talk about or questions you've got for me or, or anything? No, actually, this is a, these were good questions because I managed to talk about a lot of the things that we're thinking about in NPCQ, IC right now, which is a good thing. Maybe you should tell me what NPCQ, IC should be working on. That might be <laughs> where I should have started, actually. You tell me what should we be doing in the future. Uh, I don't know if I've got that kind of hubris, but, <laughs> you know, Michael was born six years ago, so November 30th, and uh, we didn't know at that time. I think it was about a 50-50 shot that somebody would catch it on the ultrasound. Our folks didn't. So we didn't find out till day three after birth. It was a very much a thank God kind of situation. We were in the, in the hospital still day two. They were like, okay, you guys, you can discharge if you want because you're all good, or you can, you can stick around for another day because your insurance covers it. And we were like... We'll stick around because why not? <laughs> in my in my opinion, I'd rather have a, a nurse help take care of the kid while we try and sleep. But <laughs> and so, you know, that morning we woke up on the third day, and the nurse had come in and basically saw him turn gray, blue, whatever. Rushed him out, went to the NICU. I eventually came out of my stupor, and wife got ready. We didn't really know what was going on. Doctor came in. You could see, like, you could just see it on her face, like that something was terribly wrong. And my wife was in the bathroom at the time. And she was like, 
where's your wife? And I was like, oh, she's in the bathroom. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to wait to talk to both of you. And so I sat down and she sat down and we're waiting. And I just looked at her and I was like, is it good news or bad news? And she's like, it's, it's bad news. And I was like, is he alive? And she's like, yes. And I was like, okay, we can work with that. <laughs> and, Question that you never thought you'd have to ask, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So wife came out, we got the, the one sheet paper that showed, you know, a picture of a HLHS heart, which I was one of those kids who in high school during anatomy, especially during cardiac stuff, I would pass out. Like I would like turn white as a sheet and fall over. So this was kind of a, a bumpy train ride for me, <laughs> but we got that. And, and then we were kind of at the end of the day, by the end of the day, we were at the children's hospital, children's in Fort Worth. Had a surgery at eight days. He was in a coma from that point forward. They said he looked really bad when we brought him in, but they kind of got him stable real quick. First surgery, eight days. They tried to close his chest on like the day after or two days after, and his, his heart stopped. And it wasn't an immediate. Like they closed it in the morning, and then like two in the afternoon, he went into arrest and they, they knocked open and they had to apparently restart his heart by hand. I wasn't in the. I wasn't even in the city. I I had gone to get laundry, because, because you know we we had expected three days, and now we were we were at a week. And then he he was in the. We got discharged from the CICU on New Year's, so we were a month in the CICU and then a month in the NICU. Always a good breather, but fits and starts on eating. And finally, they were just like, "Look, we're going to put you on a G button. We're going to send you home." And so they did, and then. Once we got him weaned and through the Glenn surgery, that's when I started looking into. And of course, when you're in the NICU, there's a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just is. I yeah. started looking into like, what's the future? What is the long-term prognosis? And there was a lot of stuff to the Fontan. And then there was a lot of silence after that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, we need to fix that. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to figure it out. But what I can do is I can form a charity and I can raise money for the people who are going to figure it out. And so that's why in 2017, we started the Micah Mason Foundation. And so we, we got involved with and sort of discovered MPCQIC. We got involved as parents and, and eventually discovered Fontana Outcomes Network. And we discovered the, at the time, it was the Todd and Karen Wanak Foundation out of Mayo Clinic. And since then, they've become hard work. So we're still in contact with them. So we're just kind of, in my opinion, I think everybody's working towards good solutions and everybody's doing good things. And I, I want to provide support both for y'all and then on the other side of the ball for the parents, because there's cool. always new parents coming into this world who don't know what's going on, who yep. could go out on YouTube and search or put on the Facebook thing. And so one of the goals of the podcast and, and a lot of my other YouTube stuff is to give parents, like when they search HLHS that pops up and they say, oh, this isn't a death sentence. It's hard. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. not an easy life, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of hope to it. And I think especially right now, there's a lot of hope. And I think honestly, NPCQIC is like the, the glowing, shining story in that because the, the fact that you guys were able to reduce mortality rates in the interstage and then maintain that, really, really awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> really, really awesome. So I don't know what I would tell NPCQIC to work on. I think that... <laughs> It's funny, at first, all of the the mental health stuff, I was kind of like, ah, whatever. Like, you guys should be focused on the medical stuff more. There's, mm-hmm. there's still medical problems you're trying to fix. But the longer I've done this, I'm like, no, the mental health side is, it is really important. It is a big piece of this. And so I'm glad to see that's still a, a moving forward kind of a thing. 
Yeah, I, I think that has been probably one of my biggest learning points is understanding that and not understanding it, but even just beginning to get catch a glimpse of it. And I think being in the room as some of our families have been really vulnerable and open about sharing the struggles that they face is very humbling as a, a medical professional. And it's really important to understand that. And that has changed who I am as a doctor and how I interact with families. And one of my favorite moments in MPCQIC was when I was rounding at Michigan on a weekend, probably five years ago now. And I was talking to a mom at the bedside. So I just walked, I hadn't met her before. It was my first day. And she asked me about post-traumatic stress as like a, the mom of an interstate kid. And I just thought, this is so great. This would not have happened even five years ago. And this has now become enough of an issue that people are aware of and talking about that she is comfortable enough asking a doctor who just happens to walk into her room on a Saturday morning. She didn't know that I was involved with them, but she had no way of knowing that. But it was really awesome that she asked that. And I was really glad that she asked me because I actually could speak to it a little bit. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is something pediatricians have always known. Kids are parts of families. And for kids to do well, the entire family has to be able to support and get through that. And so I think it's an incredibly important conversation that we've started in MPCQIC. And we absolutely need to and will continue it as we come together with Fawn. Yeah. And I, I really love the collaborative model. Doctors, nurses parents and now patients now looking yes. back there. and sometimes you've got a, a double like you've got a somebody who has hlhs who's a cardiologist like i was like <laughs> i saw that for yeah. the first time and i was like no well, i I, <laughs> I think we have the first one right now is spending a year with us at michigan dr tom glenn is our one of our fourth year fellows and he's interested in exercise physiology and he is somebody who has fontan physiology himself and i i agree with you i think that is just probably beyond the wildest dreams of the people who founded MPCQIC really not that long ago, right? Not even 20 years ago that we would have a pediatric cardiologist with Fontan Physiology leading the Fontan Outcomes Network. Like that is, and, and I don't mean to say that to minimize any of the other excellent adults who are leading that, adult, this is weird, but it, you know, adult people with Fontan Physiology, like Meg and Alicia, all the rest of them. But I think, you know, just actually seeing Tom complete his fellowship and become a leader in Fontan has just been really beyond our wildest dreams. Very much so. Well, I want to say thank you very much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity to interview you. Thanks for doing what you're doing, Patrick. I think this is really important. I think it's a really creative idea to have a podcast about this. And um, I hope it helps. Even if it helps one family out there, that's worth it. I agree. Thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you again for joining us, dear listener, for this episode of Sharing the Hope from the Micah Mason Foundation. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Katie Bates and her explanation of NPCQIC, or the National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative. You can find them at npcqic.org on the web. If you'd like to volunteer or help out with the organization, please head to the website and click on Learn More. If you'd like to support the podcast or the Micah Mason Foundation, please go to micahmasonfoundation.org and click on the donate button. I'm your host, Patrick Mason, with the Micah Mason Foundation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.